You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. 2020 was to mark the year of the nurse in a nod to Florence Nightingale. Little did we know that a pandemic was on our doorstep. Internationally, the demand for nurses is up, including the specialty intensive care nurses who travel from other places to meet the critical care needs. We sat down with Hilton Rathel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii Friday afternoon to talk about Hawaii's urgent need for nurses. Traveling nurses are in very high demand across the country right now because of the pandemic and also other situations that are going on. There are fires in California, there's a hurricane and came through in the uh, Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. And so between all of those factors and the COVID pandemic across the United States, nurses are in very, very short supply across the country. So how are we trying to deal with our rising need? Well, There are four separate initiatives that we're working on right now. So one of them is to take advantage of all available resources in the state of Hawaii. We do have a Hawaii Medical Reserve Corps, which is a collaboration between our emergency services branch, HHEM, and the Hawaii State Department of Health. And the Hawaii Medical Reserve Corps is a group of a couple of hundred individuals with different types of credentials, some of them medical, others not, who have volunteered to assist in cases of emergency, but these are volunteers and they are only available typically to serve, you know, for a couple of days, maybe a few days max. And so we have actually deployed the Hawaii Medical Reserve Corps twice this week or activated that, in other words, put out a call for volunteers for a couple of different situations. So that's one thing we've done, but that's not a long-term care solution. A long-term solution, that's simply a solution to help out for a day, a couple of days, and you know, if there were to be a brief emergency. There is another initiative that we're actively working on. We're working with the Hawaii State Center for Nursing and all our nursing schools across the state. There are many nursing graduates who have completed all their requirements but have not yet taken their boards or the NCLEX exam. And so under the emergency proclamation that the governor has issued, those nursing students or the no longer students are actually graduates are able to work even without having taken their boards. Now, if they were to work in a healthcare setting, they would typically not be deployed on the front line again because they've not completed their boards. But or part, you know, sat for and passed their boards, but there is a number of activities that these nursing students or these nursing graduates can do to support actual nursing staff. So that's a second initiative. A third initiative we're looking at is these staffing agencies across the mainland to see what resources we can bring in. We have a number of our hospitals that are working with different agencies. The challenge there, again, is the cost, is that's much more expensive to bring these nurses in, you pay them a higher hourly rate, you have to pay all their travel expenses, accommodation, things like that. And the fourth thing we're working on is working with the federal government. So we are working through the State Department of Health, IEMA, and they and through the governor's office to coordinate with FEMA and HHS to identify potential mainland resources that would be either mainland National Guard or potentially DOD personnel that could be deployed but we have to exhaust all local resources and other resources like these staffing agencies before we're able to tap federal resources. Do you think we're going to get to that point? 
we we don't know right now. The the challenge again is the cost. So let me just give you some numbers. So we are tracking our census, and we use our baseline, the average daily census for all of our hospitals for 2019, all of last year. And last Friday, we were operating at about 100% of our staff bed capacity. Now we have approximately 3,000 available hospital beds in the state. But generally, we only staff about 2,000 of those. So as of last Friday, we were operating at 100% of our available bed capacity. Now, that number has been creeping up over this week. And as of today, we're now operating at 106% of our staff bed capacity. Now, that means that today we are taking care of 111 more patients than what we were taking care of a week ago. And last week, again, we were at 100% of our capacity. So that means that we are already, last Friday, we were already at our full capacity. This week, this a week later, we have 111 more patients in. So we already have been out there scrambling, looking for resources to take care of these additional patients. And because the infection rates are continuing to have tripled, be in the triple-digit numbers, we've had some more deaths, unfortunately. So as those numbers continue to climb, it means that we need to put into activation more of the beds. We have the beds. We have the physical space. What we're short of is nursing, and that's why we have all these different initiatives to pull in additional resources. What kind of response did you get from the survey? We've had over 800 people respond to the survey. We're sifting through all of that. Now, some of those individuals are already working, so that, you know, they may be able to do some extra shifts or something like that. Some of those nurses, approximately 150, are these nursing graduates that we talked about. So we're looking through all of that data right now, and we are collecting that info, information, collating it, and then sharing it, the, the names that are appropriate and the contact information with our hospitals so they then can start reaching out to those individuals to see if they can put some of these nurses into use. So we are, we've been somewhat overwhelmed with the number and very appreciative of the number of individuals who have responded to that survey. They can do some things like screening, administrative tasks, things like that. But we're not going to put them on the front line, you know, taking care of ICU patients, COVID patients, things like that. What we do need is more nurses who can be put on the front line. So these nursing graduates and these other volunteers are very much appreciated and they will help, but they will not solve the problem for us. What about like the CNAs, you know, the AIDS? Well, we are utilizing them as well, but it's not just our hospitals that are running into issues here. Part of the issue we're facing is that we have lost a significant number of nurses and CNAs this year for a variety of reasons. There's been retirements, resignations, people not comfortable coming to work. We've got people out, nurses and CNAs are out sick. We had one example just yesterday where there was one in a nursing facility, there was one individual who tested positive, and when they did the contact tracing, they identified 20 CNAs who had potentially been in contact with that one individual, close contact, and all 20 of those individuals have gone back in isolation. So we have lost 20 individuals just at one facility for two weeks because of close contact. Now, we are hopeful that none of those 20 
get sick, that none of them test positive, but that's the standard is that they need to be in isolation. In other words, they cannot work for two weeks. And we have had multiple instances where that has happened, where we've had a healthcare worker who's been exposed or gone positive or potentially exposed that has had a ripple effect throughout that whole unit or that whole department. And, and all of these factors deplete the number of nursing staff, whether it's CNAs, whether it's RNs, and so they all contribute and exacerbate the situation that we're facing right now. So I'm sure then some of the healthcare workers are faced with you know double shifts if, if they've got to cover for workers that are out. Yes, we are, and that's a concern for us because these nurses, our doctors, our therapists, they have been working for months dealing with this pandemic. They're getting tired. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of work to do all the infection control, and they're doing an incredible job in their infection control and doing the appropriate mask wearing, the face shields, all the, the gowns, all the things they need to do. But all that takes time. It all adds to the stress of, ta of doing their jobs. And so we are having to, again, look for all available resources, these volunteers, these graduate students, bringing in staffing from the mainland and even potentially tapping federal resources. So we're meeting every day with our federal partners, which is the Department of Health, HIEMA, FEMA, HHS. We are meeting with them every day to give them a status update, to get guidance from them as to what information they need. And so we're looking for all potential resources here to make sure that when the people in Hawaii do get sick, we have enough staff to provide all the care that they need. And do you see a point when you might have to uh, go to Plan B just on the facilities? Well, that is a plan that's out there, but a potential plan. But at this point in time, again, we have approximately 3,000 actual beds in the state, physical beds available. Typically, we only use 2,000 of them now. We have quite a few more beds yet. We have literally a few hundred beds more available, which is the actual space. We have the beds we have the oxygen, we have the power. What we don't have is the staff. And if we were to even go to like a field hospital or a Blaisdell, we still need all the same staff. So it doesn't make sense to go to an alternative care site when we have space in our hospitals. The issue is not space, the issue is not beds, the issue is staffing. That was a conversation we had with Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, about our critical need for nurses. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Here 
Here we are on the final day of August. It's a lot sunnier and temperatures are rising. And you may find yourself with a serious craving for ice cream to cool off. Well, no problem satisfying it today, but back in the day, Honolulu citizens did not get to experience the yummy treat until May of 1870. The Criterion Coffee Salon first offered it in Hawaii, but in today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know about the ice cream cone. Many historians say the first one was probably served up at the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis, better known as the 1904 World's Fair. However, a 19th century Kauai uh, Kama'aina claims to have done it first. For today's quiz, can you tell us the name of the Garden Islander who believed to have in- invented the first ice cream cone? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com. You know, we've been highlighting available jobs and resources as companies have laid off employees during the pandemic. Today, we look at a couple that have found themselves out of a job but have emerged as entrepreneurs. Zach Villanueva started making ice cream as a hobby. Prior to the pandemic, he worked full-time at Kohana Distillers in Kunia, but was laid off as agritourism disappeared. His longtime girlfriend, Courtney Rowe, is a CPA with a bookkeeping business and at the beginning of the year co-founded an event company focused on relationships called Real Social. After organizing a Valentine's Day singles mixer, she was planning the company's second mixer when the state ordered the first shutdown. Since events were out of the question and Zach now had time to turn out larger batches of ice cream, they decided to go all in and make Sage Creamery their primary gig. Their unique flavors include uh, local products, uh, including Paniolo hot chocolate made with local cacao and Hawaiian chili peppers and Kiave honey lavender with local honey. The business owner spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai about starting a company during these COVID times. For me, as far as, you know, dessert our concern ice cream is like the best thing in the world so like growing up when i was um earlier on you know age of seven or eight i have you know really good memories of you know my family like all of us eating ice cream and you know my dad busting out the the briars container from the store and it would just be sometimes before dinner sometimes after dinner it was just kind of like good memories with that so i really loved ice cream more recently, after we, uh, me and Courtney would go traveling, you know, to different states or different, you know, sometimes different countries for me, at any point, I would basically stop off and at least try some ice cream shops that were in the area. And, you know, in, in trying other ice creams around the, the U.S. mainland, you know, found that there's all these flavors that Hawaii really didn't have or offer. And, um, I, th- I, feel, I felt like the quality was, you know, at certain shops were a lot higher, and, and I couldn't really find that here. So um, I set out to kind of make my own at home. And so probably around five years ago is when I bought my first ice cream machine. And um, it was a, a home 
model, uh, Cuisinart. I bought it for 20 bucks off of Craigslist. And, um, yeah, I started to make ice cream at home. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I bought, you know, a bunch of cookbooks, started to turn out little batches using local ingredients, only using, you know, try to use organic as much as possible. And you could really taste the quality. So the product was, in my opinion, it was better than what I could buy in the store. And so that's really where it started for me as far as, as making ice cream. I mean, it didn't dawn on me to, you know, really turn it into a business. It, it, it kind of just happened, I guess we say organically, but it, it felt like it just, I guess it was kind of like destined. It was kind of always on this path of starting my own business, but also, you know, ice cream made sense because it was something that I really cared about as far as the, the quality. And so as far as our, our name, Sage Creamery, uh, that didn't come about really until my, my brother had passed. And um, that was around two years ago. Uh, actually, uh, August 7, 2018, he, he passed away from cancer. And um, it was really after going through that and really seeing how he well, how he lived, but also in, in his passing, we learned all of these kind of amazing things about him by reading his journals. And, and I really found out he lived his life in a way that was like uh, like a sage. So we kind of refer to him as the, the living sage in that he was wise. And we, we didn't really understand that most of the times. But, um, but yeah. Losing Daniel was just really um, surprising, you know, borderline tragic. Because he was only 36 years old at the time. And we, from the time he was diagnosed with um, lymphoma, he... He died a short four months later. So just going through that experience was, I mean, it was, you know, anyone who has experienced that in their family, losing a sibling, I mean, it's one of the most heartbreaking things anyone can go through. But we were able to find, like, we, we really learned a lot in his death. Um, I think you've also seen how many people Daniel has inspired you know, not just in his life, but in his death. And yeah, like there are just things that when Daniel was alive, he was just, I don't want to say peculiar, but there were just certain things that, you know, Daniel would do that we didn't quite understand or couldn't comprehend. But that was because Daniel was someone who didn't really care what anyone thought. He was very focused on being true and authentic to himself. And in doing that, he, I mean, he, he traveled to the Amazon. He, like, by himself, he did so many things that ultimately led to a very fulfilling life in those short 36 years. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's the origin of this sage nickname. And the other thing, too, was that he had told us that before he died, the only thing that he regretted was not starting his own business. He was actually in the process of trying to start his own um, float tank business. But he said, you know, he doesn't know why. Maybe it was the fear that prevented him, but that, that was his one regret. So anyways, it kind of just all came together when, you know, after Daniel passed. And, and then I feel like we all kind of had like a renewed sense of like, we need to do what, what 
lights our fire, you know, like whatever we're passionate about, that's what we need to do. And when it came time to naming this ice cream business, I mean, it really was just so fitting to take the name Sage and and have that be basically the the intention of this new business. Great that you're able to honor him mm-hmm. through the company and through the name and, you know, every time you can remember his life, every time you open a pint of ice cream. What do you think is the biggest challenge that you've had so far with opening a business during this time? Our biggest challenge has just been balancing our relationship with this new venture because of the fact that this kind of just happened. Like Zach was able to release batches online and people just responded so well. And then we just jumped in while this business was almost taking off on its own. It's not something we planned for. And so in that, trying to figure out who's doing what and then having our 12 and a half year relationship be a factor in all of that, that's just been, that's been something that has been a bit challenging. But, but I will also say rewarding as well. Obviously, in any work environment, the relationships, um, whether it's a coworker or your boss or whoever it is, I mean, yeah, that's definitely, you know, how to navigate it here, your work relationship and also our relationship of 12 years, trying to navigate that is, is obviously a challenge. But as far as, you know, starting it up during COVID, the interesting thing I think for me is I didn't really find it difficult to put my focus and energy uh, onto it. Once I, once we came up with the name and we, you know, we kind of talked about the brand and the, the vision, I guess, that we had for it, it was really easy as far as, you know, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to launch it. I think it's just the, with every I guess, business owner, you know, you go through the growing pains of, you know, all the things you didn't plan for. So, you know, if we're going to make ice cream, uh, we weren't planning on like, okay, we're, we're about to sell out. So we need to get more ingredients. So it's really like the sourcing, uh, making sure that we're staying on top of, you know, our inventory and, the fact that we're using organic dairy, um, pretty sure we're the only company uh, in in Hawaii that that's sourcing it from uh, this this uh, farm in California. It, it was a challenge in that the logistics of setting that up. So I, I, we needed to just you know troubleshoot and figure that part out. Um, yeah, just working out the kinks and the logistics of everything has been a challenge. But I think every business owner goes through that. But like Courtney mentioned, biggest challenge also is navigating our relationship through yeah. uh, through life and also through the business. I, I do think, too, like we're fortunate that although it's, you know, these crazy COVID times, as you can tell, like most of the challenges aren't coming from COVID. In fact, it, it almost feels as though this whole pandemic almost offered us like more opportunity because really our initial launch was offered online where we were offering um like drive-by pickup and free delivery. And really, you know, ice cream is this the ultimate comfort food, right? And not only that, but it's, it's an affordable luxury, you know, in a time where people need to be mindful of their budgets. Like this is something that people can kind of splurge on without breaking the bank. We're very fortunate that COVID actually brought us 
more opportunities and challenges. That was Courtney Rowe and Zach Villanueva, owners of Sage Creamery. Their ice cream can be found at Midlandi Farmer's Market on Sunday mornings and the Blaisdell Market on uh, Wednesday nights and also at Diamond Head Market in Grill here on Oahu. They're also members of the Entrepreneur Sandbox in Kaka'ako, a co-working space and hub for business founders and freelancers. Find more information and links to our, uh, on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, offering palliative, hospice, and bereavement care since 1983, now hiring health care and administrative professionals. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. COPD makes it feel like you're breathing through a very small straw. Any illness, bronchitis, pneumonia, coronavirus, can make it much worse. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with the head of the Hawaii COPD Coalition about tips to stay safe as the cold and flu season takes hold. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. On our Reality Check segment, we check in with Honolulu Civil Beats, Aaron Parikini, who is based on the Garden Isle. He has the results of a survey on Kauai small businesses. Good morning, Alan. Hi, Catherine. So your headline is hanging by a thread. Yes. Well, I, I was expecting, I knew this survey was being conducted. Uh, for one thing, I'm a member of the Kauai Chamber of Commerce, so I actually filled it out for my own uh, furniture-making business. Uh, but I would have imagined that a t- typical Chamber of Commerce audience would uh, question whether uh, the government interventions and prevention steps that have been taken uh, are inex- unacceptably painful to business. Uh, instead, we find that, uh, and it's a good response rate, 129 out of 406 businesses responded, but almost 70% of the business owners and managers support the interventions that, that have, have gone on. Uh, I think that's a very, it was to me a surprising uh, statistic, and I also was alarmed that almost 40% of them say that unless tourism recovers, they'll be out of business within six months. So, knowing they may be driven out of business by this uh, pandemic, they still say government interventions uh, have been have been a good idea. That to me was astonishing. Yeah, here on Oahu, we're seeing everybody, you know pointing fingers, you know, why us, you know, <laughs> you know, shut those guys down instead. But it's, yeah, interesting to see uh, that point of view there on Kauai. What it doesn't address, obviously, is these folks are owners and managers. So they are speaking for themselves on behalf of their businesses. We don't know anything about how the employees of those businesses feel. Uh, and those are people who are out of work, may, may be out of work for quite some time. Uh, are struggling with uh, unemployment, struggling to keep their heads above water. So how the, uh, the employees, and we don't have a, a good number, we, uh, how many people, how many workers this survey represents, but how the employees feel is, is unknown. 
But there are an awful lot of businesses on Kauai that are uh, family-owned, mom-and-pop operations. They're represented uh, along with larger businesses in this sample. Uh, some organizations that you would expect to say uh, the government has, has acted too harshly and not let up in time uh, don't. So uh, I think it's, 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 uh, it's really a surprising finding. So what did the, uh, the chamber think of this? They were surprised, too. I talked to uh, Mark Periello, the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and he said that they, after they started passing the numbers around, uh, there was pretty broad consensus that they were surprised, and he said that he himself was surprised, uh, so, and as did uh, at least one chamber board member I talked to. So uh, I don't think anybody saw this coming. I think it's, it's laudable that Kauai businesses feel this way. Uh, it's encouraging that they, uh, they have a perspective that is longer term than simply uh, their immediate 48-hour uh, uh, profit and loss. I was reading a, a couple of medical journal articles uh, a couple days ago before this ran, and it turns out that nationwide, localities that implemented uh, harsh lockdown standards and did it early end up, this is after the uh, 1917 to 1919 flu, the cities that locked down hard early did better economically after the, episode, after the epidemic passed. And I think that's a, a, a point of enormous importance. And it seems like it's what Kauai business owners are banking on. Well, I guess, you know, you look at these numbers and you think, yeah, they are concerned about the health aspect. You know, yes, the bottom line, you know, the, the of, of their budgets, right, of whether you're going to, you know, make it through the year, but uh, public health is up there for them. Public health is certainly up there, and I think it's a, it's a statement of uh, consensus with what government has done. And as you know, uh, we're, we've approached this a little bit differently over here uh, with Mayor Derek Kawakami. Uh, we had a lockdown. Pretty early, we had a curfew. I, I think it was the, the only one in the state for quite some time. Uh, and the Kauai Police Department and National Guard really took this seriously. Uh, and so I think that if you, if, if you look at why the business owners uh, support the kind of intervention we've had, that intervention has been even-handed. It was started early, and it was comprehensive. And I think people appreciate that. Well, we certainly have learned a lot from Kauai during uh, these COVID times, uh, and uh, this is an interesting uh, insight uh, into their psyche. But thank you so much, Alan. Okay. That was, that was Alan Parrakini with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Researchers from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology have devised a new method of measuring biodiversity in our coral reefs. The hope is that it will uh, offer a better understanding of how ecosystems are affected by destructive events, such as 
ocean warming, or coral bleaching. The conversations Harrison Patino spoke with researcher Joshua Madden about the project. Habitat complexity is a very important part of all ecosystems, both underwater and on land. This complexity, it's kind of like you know, the junkyard in your back garden. It accumulates lots of different types of critters of all different sizes. So if you were to look through your junk pile, you would find a whole range of things, from ants to centipedes and all kinds of stuff. So this complexity is really important in natural systems because it allows what scientists call biodiversity to accumulate. Well, something I read was that this new method will allow for new insights into how structural changes to land and seascapes will alter ecosystems. Now, for the layman amongst us, go ahead and break that down. The work we did identified a really neat way of measuring the complexity of a habitat. So when a habitat's complex and contains lots of biodiversity and lots of critters, if it gets damaged by a storm or on a coral reef, you know, a bleaching event can lead to a lot of death of the corals, which create a lot of the complexity, then that habitat loses complexity and becomes flatter, if you like. And that means that the biodiversity tends to decrease alongside of that. So if we understand how complexity is related to biodiversity, which is what I think we've done in this study, then we can also understand how destroying complexity will lead to losses of biodiversity. As you said earlier, this data is very pertinent to coral reefs, the idea of monitoring complex biodiversity within coral reef systems. Corals that you see out on the reef, they actually build the complexity of the reef. They're very, very important for creating habitat for the fishes that people like to go fishing for, uh, for invertebrates like octopus and other crabs and other kinds of things. And so basically, the more complex a reef, anyone who's been out there snorkeling or diving, you see a, a, a reef that's covered in all different shapes and sizes of corals and lots of canyons and things, you see a lot of biodiversity. You see a lot of sharks and fish and other kinds of things. And so this work actually came, the kind of breakthrough I think that we found actually came from work on coral reefs and because this complexity is so important for those ecosystems. So how can this data be applied to specifically locally here, uh, Hawaiian marine biosystems? It could be used as a way to, to monitor those systems. So there have been losses of coral in the reefs around Hawaii, especially in some places, but you know, Hawaii is doing pretty well relative to other places around the world. But it's always good to monitor those reefs to see if the complexity, the three-dimensionality of those reefs is changing. And if it is declining, to kind of act on that to try and prevent biodiversity loss. Now, your team's research points out that there are three key factors to determining what you guys call habitat diversity. So what are those factors? There are three key factors for determining the complexity of a habitat. And they've got rather complicated names, but they're actually quite simple phenomena. So the first one's what is called rugosity, and that is basically the amount of surface area you have within a habitat. So if you think about a piece of paper and you scrunch it up, within that ball you've got lots and lots of surface area for things to live on. That's rugosity. The second one is called fractal dimension. Sounds really complicated, but that just kind of gives you a sense for how many critters of different sizes can fit within that habitat. If you scrunch up that paper really tight, you've got lots of little things can live in there, but if it's kind of loose, you have some bigger uh, critters that can live amongst it. And the third one is just the height of the habitat. You know, if you're in a forest, that's a really tall habitat, right? But a coral reef might range from pretty flat to a couple of metres, depending on which reef you're on. And that tells you about the kind of maximum size of the creatures and critters that you're likely to find in that habitat. 
this method of measuring habitat diversity, it, it's a new one that you note. So how is it different from how scientists have previously measured this kind of data? So scientists have been really interested in the relationship between habitat complexity and the biodiversity contained within that habitat for a long time. It's just that they've used rather simple ways of kind of measuring that complexity. So traditionally, scientists have used rugosity, which is just one of those three factors I talked about. And rugosity captures part of the picture. It gives you how much surface area there is in the habitat, but it misses these other two critical dimensions. So a lot of past research has been looking at this relationship has found kind of not very good relationships between structural complexity and biodiversity, but by using all three of these variables, these measurements that we have discovered that are useful, you can capture a lot more of the relationship. And that's uh, kind of the breakthrough, I think. So altogether, it provides a more comprehensive and ultimately a more accurate picture of this marine habitat biodiversity. Absolutely. So the really neat thing about this, with the mathematics behind what we worked on is that of those three variables I talked about, the rugosity, fractal dimension, and the height of the habitat, you only actually need two, and you automatically find the third. So it kind of makes it much easier for people monitoring or measuring natural habitats like coral reefs to measure them. So I also understand there was some pretty serious gear involved in collecting the data here. Could you tell us about some of that? Sure. Well, the remarkable thing is that you can actually do this with just an underwater camera, just a handheld camera. But because we were doing quite large areas of coral reef, we got the help of uh, a group uh, who design underwater robots that can kind of swim the camera gear around for us in neat patterns so that we can get really large areas of reef up to, you know, a few hundred feet in area. It's pretty amazing to watch these robots kind of doing their thing underwater and you just kind of sit back on the boat and just watch the data pouring in. So now that your team has devised this new method for measuring biodiversity, what's the hope for how this will affect future research projects? I think it's going to make scientists really think about how they measure habitat complexity. It's important not just underwater on coral reefs, but in forests, on land, on mountaintops. Because if you're only measuring it in a very simplistic way, you're not going to get the full picture of the biodiversity and the biodiversity trends that are going on with um, climate change and other things like that. And so I think it's kind of opened people's eyes to how to do this properly. And I really hope it's useful for other research groups that are measuring habitat complexity in different ecosystems. That was researcher Joshua Madden talking, uh, talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about a new method he and other researchers from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology have created to measure habitat diversity on our reefs. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips to hear about the latest developments in SpaceX Starlink project. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny, troubled planet, as usual, we're fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us on the way. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the east after sunset, and at around 9.30 p.m., Mars will also be rising in the east. 
The moon this week is passing through its full phase, meaning, of course, that sky brightness will remain high through to the end of next week. That means it may be hard to spot some of those Starlink satellites, and apparently you've got an update on those? Yes, there are new developments in the ongoing drama of SpaceX Starlink project. This bold project to launch thousands of small internet-providing satellites into low Earth orbit has become a thorn in the side of astronomers, especially people like me that work on large-scale wired field surveys. <laughs> At a recent event attended by astronomers and space industry representatives, efforts were made to understand how we can mitigate the damage to astronomy, an effort that would require both astronomers and satellite operators to work together. And bring everybody up to speed on exactly why these things, again, are such a problem. Well, the issue is that because of their low orbit and high reflectivity, they catch the sun's rays and cause streaks and trails in astronomical images. This is most pronounced during sunrise and sunset when the satellites are not completely within the Earth's shadow. And as for that meeting you're talking about, what were some of the ideas? Well, both sides are keen to see a resolution to this problem, but stopping launches altogether is not an option. So observatories may have to time their observations in between satellite passes. And in turn, satellite makers will have to find ways to darken their spacecraft and make them less visible to Earth-based telescopes. But it'll do nothing about the ones that are up there. Unfortunately not. So it's really not an easy fix, huh? It's really not. And these satellites are not just a problem for astronomers. They are a problem for anyone that enjoys the night sky because they are also visible to the human eye. With tens of thousands of these machines destined for launch, our view of the night sky is going to be transformed forever. Imagine seeing the equivalent of the H1 freeway passing overhead at night while you chill out on the beach. That gives you an idea of how bad things will get. Christopher Phillips, another enlightening and uh, frightening Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Well, summer and ice cream go hand in hand. Lucky for us, the cool treat has been in Hawaii since oh, 1870. That's when the Criterion Coffee Saloon first offered it. Some people say you can't eat the creamy stuff without a crunchy cone. And this morning, we asked you about the cone's history. The first ice cream cone is documented at the World's Fair in St. Louis, 1904. But Kauai Kama'aina Josephine Wonderberg King claimed she invented it earlier than that in the 19 or the 1890s. And as the story goes, after serving ice cream to the ladies and children of the Hawaiian Sunday School at her home in Lehue, she noticed that her spoons were disappearing. So she instructed her local Japanese baker to roll senbei cookies into carnacopias or cones to hold the ice cream in order to prevent spoon burglary. Uh, thanks to Robert Schmidt and the Hawaiian Historical Society for that yummy bit of trivia. We got lots of calls, but no right answers. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, 
serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls and Kaka'ako Wine. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Wednesday, September 2nd, marks the end of World War II. While this pandemic has forced the cancellation of many of the planned events for the 75th commemoration, one thing it hasn't affected is the aerial parade of our warplanes. You may have spied some of them in the skies over Oahu this weekend. The big gathering in the skies is set for Wednesday morning above Pearl Harbor. So if you can be in the area, look to the heavens for a glimpse of the vintage planes that played a major part in the war in the Pacific. One of those warbirds is a B-25 medium bomber. Pilot David Prescott uh, owns and brought the old glory over from upstate New York. He talked with us this morning about the plane's part in the Doolittle Raid, the attack on Japan following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So the Doolittle Raid, one of the most uh, significant impacts um, I feel you know, about that raid was, one, the United States was very downtrodden and morally beaten, uh, you know, by uh, by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor early in the war. You know, we were beaten back in the Philippines and not really uh, not really winning anywhere. The Japanese had had a uh, you know had a history of nobody having ever attacked uh, their home islands, and they came up with uh, the planners came up with a with a brilliant raid that wasn't going to do a lot of significant military damage, but it did significant emotional damage to the Japanese by striking their home islands. And the Japanese at first didn't know where that attack came from, and assume the only place that that, that attack could have come from uh, um, was Midway. Um, and so that, uh, that led to them starting the, uh, you know, starting the plans uh, you know, from, uh, for the attack on Midway, uh, which um, luckily went our way due to our code breakers and, uh, and helped change the outcome, you know, the path of the war. Now, from what I understand, that when the B-25s went out, a lot of those pilots were told, you know, you may not return. It was a very high-risk mission. Um, they all knew going into it, you know, that uh, there were a lot of things had to go uh, perfect and a lot of things had to go right um, in order to have a chance of, you know, of success. And as we know from, from the stories, you know, that uh, they ended up having to launch 170 miles earlier than originally planned. And, you know, as we hear that today, 170 miles, that doesn't seem like a lot. Well... In uh, you know, in an older World War II plane that burns a lot of gas, 170 miles is almost an hour's worth of fuel. It's a long added range. I've always been a uh, World War II aviation, especially Pacific fan and uh, an aviation buff. Um, I just happened to have the opportunity, you know, through my through my life, and got lucky with the business that I had and, and sold to have the financial opportunity to acquire some of these artifacts. And you know, my passion is being able to share those, share what I have with others, because. I myself, as a kid, you know, always dreamed of being able to, to sit on a bomber or, or touch a fighter or, or see them a person. So, you know, I want to continue sharing that with as many other kids as I can. So how many planes do you own in your collection? So currently I have four uh, Warbirds right now, and it'll continue expanding as I find the right, uh, the right aircraft. And so what's it been like for you, you know, hauling this airbird across the country and across the Pacific to take part in this. Yeah, you know, the amazing stories of every place we pull into for fuel of 
they bring crowds of people that have just always dreamed of seeing these up close and in person yeah, out to see them even when we stop just for a few hours for fuel. This plane, did it take part in the battle in the Pacific or was it mainly in Europe? The particular B-25 that I have was assigned uh, to Italy. So if, it, if you remember the movie Catch-22 or the book Catch-22, it operated out of Corsica in Italy for it part of World War II. So it, it was intact and just waiting for you to snatch her up and bring her across <laughs> over here, huh? <laughs> Correct. Gosh, you, you've been able to connect with, with some of these veterans. One I understand of Jack Detour, he's a former World War II B-25 bomber pilot, so that must have been a thrill. You're just so amazing how, you know, how much clarity he remembers and immediately pops into his mind you know as soon as he saw the plane and got to and you know got to ride in the aircraft how vivid those images just come right back to him in fact uh, you know a funny part of the story is the driver from the pacific pacific aviation museum who drove him over you know kind of had to rush him along you know to leave and then you know end his discussion with us you know that day just because he you know he just wanted to keep sharing and talking and I wasn't going to say no. The plan for Wednesday, what can you share with our listeners? Well, I mean, the plan for uh, Wednesday is, um, you know, it'll be an aerial parade over Fort Island in the battleship uh, Missouri and, and uh, the USS Arizona to kind of do the best we can to recreate the victory flyover um, over the USS Missouri, you know, which the USS Missouri experienced in Tokyo Bay for the signing of of uh, the end of World War II by all the Allied powers and the uh, and the Japanese you know, bringing a formal end to hostilities for the world. And so, yeah, if we're out there, then we should uh, get a good vantage point. Yes, the B-25 is one of the loudest airplanes, so you will definitely know it's coming, and it'll be leading the parade, so uh, so you'll see it. It's nice, bright, shiny silver. So We'll catch its glint in the sky. And then what's it been like for you coming here to Honolulu? I don't know if you've been here before for any of the commemorations of December 7th. No, I haven't. This is actually my first time for any of the commemorations. I was here once a couple of years ago with with my family for vacation, but this is a totally different experience. Being able to actually, you know, get closer to, you know, what really happened, and you know, and see what really happened. You know, we had the opportunity to go out on Ford Island and actually see the, uh, you know, the bullet strafing marks in the concrete that are still there, and realize, you know, as you look at photos from uh, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, you know, as to, you know, how things have evolved and changed, um, but, you know, but our history is still here. Wow, so this really caps off your love and your passion for this part of history. You know, that's the, the amazing part about doing, you know, things like this is that you can't replace, you know, the real touch and feel of things with looking at stuff on the Internet or looking looking at them in a book. That's, you know, that reties back into, you know, my whole, uh, you know, drive of being able to have, you know, these aircraft around the country for, for our next generations to hear, see, and I know this sounds crazy, but smell. I mean, when you, you know, when you go to an airport and you see a radial engine airplane, you know, like these start up, fire up and, you know, and run, they have a totally different smell to them. And it's something you're not going to forget. Well, hats off to you, a salute to you for, for keeping a bit of this history around for all of us to experience on Wednesday. You folks also, uh, as part of this thing, brought over a whole shipment of uh, toys, for, toys tots. for tots. Yes. Yep. I appreciate I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to point that out. So, uh, I'm a, a Navy veteran, and um, one of the things that I did to, you know, I, you know, to kind of keep going after I got out is I got, you know, I got into Toys for Tots um, pretty good. Um, you know, just how can you not love giving toys to, you know, to, you know, to, uh, to kids? I mean, it's, it's so simple. It's so easy. Um, it's so impactful. So uh, one of my uh, one of the guys that worked for me uh, was a uh, gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps, and he was, uh, in, you know, he is still is in charge of uh, the Toys for Tots region where I'm from. And, 
you know, through his connections, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Roman, um, through his connections, we were able to get the uh, Marine Corps to uh, to quickly get a semi truckload of, uh, of pallets uh, delivered to uh, to San Diego, so that we could uh, load them aboard the you know uh, the USS Essex and uh, under the uh, under the guise that they were extra parts for the B twenty five. Um, but no, the Navy knew what they you know knew what was coming, and they were uh, very happy to uh, to assist in getting uh, uh, getting toys over here for Toys for Tots. And hopefully there was a toy plane in that shipment. Touching young and old hearts. That was Dave Prescott, pilot in Warbuff, whose aircraft, the Old Glory, will be in the aerial parade over the USS Missouri September 2nd, Wednesday, the 75th anniversary of the signing of the Japanese Instrument of Surrender. That's it for today. Tomorrow we plan to hear from University of Hawaii President David Lassner. Got something on your mind? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.